Well, good morning. This is the first ever theological equipping class not recorded in the context of an actual class uh, due to the coronavirus pandemic. Zach is going to give a few pastoral thoughts in his sermon this morning, so let's just dive into the material for the class. This semester, we've been talking about apologetics and various worldview issues. We've been dealing with things like evolution that we talked about last week uh, to conspiracy theories, like the idea that there were books left out of the Bible. Uh, Today's topic is a really fun sort of conspiracy theory you'll encounter on everything from YouTube videos to National Geographic documentaries to major motion pictures like the Da Vinci Code. Let me give you a few examples of this alleged conspiracy that we are discussing Uh, today. First, that uh, the flood account is not unique to Genesis. In fact, many ancient cultures, uh, many ancient uh, Near Eastern myths mention worldwide floods. For example, the Epic of Gilgamesh, which sounds like a a movie about the Smurfs enemy. His name was uh, Gargamel or something like that. But speaking of Genesis, it it isn't the only game in town when it comes to creation stories. We read similar sorts of stories and things like the Babylonian account of the Enuma Elish. Or my favorite conspiracy theory, uh, I saw this recently on the internet. Did you know that Horus, the falcon god of, uh, of Egypt, was born on December 25th, was born of a virgin. His birth was accompanied by a star in the east. He was adored by three kings upon his birth. He became a child teacher at age 12. He was baptized at age 30 by Anup, the baptizer. He had 12 disciples. He performed miracles like walking on the water. He was called the truth and the light. He was crucified and resurrected three days later. By the way, this isn't just the case for Horus. We see similar depictions in ancient literature regarding Osiris and Dionysius and Mithra. Well, that's just a crazy coincidence. So what are we to do with that information? Well, obviously we should conclude that the Jesus story is just a myth and give up on this Christianity thing. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And that's one option that we have. Or we can do as Teddy Roosevelt once remarked, don't believe everything you read on the internet. I recommend the latter because these conspiracy theories are hogwash. I don't even know what hogwash is, but that's what they are. So does Christianity borrow ideas from non-Christian myths? Let's answer that question this morning in the form of seven facts that you need to know about these alleged uh, pagan parallels. First fact that you need to know. Well, there are actual similarities between Christianity and other religions. It's actually true that there are parallels between the creation and the flood accounts of Genesis and that of other ancient Near Eastern literature like the Enuma Elish, the Epic of Gilgamesh. There are similarities between the New Testament and various pagan mystery religions. But that fact in and of itself doesn't prove anything. Let's do an exercise. Which of our pastors am I thinking about? This particular pastor is from East Texas. He's married with two kids. He became pastor of Parkway at the age of 37 and he has a Master's of Theology degree from Dallas Theological Seminary. If you said that I'm thinking of myself, that's kind of rude, and it's totally wrong. I'm actually talking about Jerry Hallbrook, the former pastor. He and I share all of those in common. Now, do you conclude that one of us doesn't exist? Of course not, but if you watch internet conspiracy theories, Similarities like that must mean that I'm a figment or that Jerry didn't exist. 
Or this is a really fascinating example. I literally just heard about this last night. What boat was it that crossed from Europe to the U.S. in the month of April? It hit an iceberg in the Atlantic and it sunk. But there were not enough lifeboats so that lots of people ended up dying. Well, if you said the answer to that is the Titanic, you're actually wrong. It's not the Titanic. It's the Titan from the novel The Futility. Now, when was this novel written? It was actually written in 1898, 14 years before the Titanic. Now, do all of these similarities mean that the Titanic didn't happen? No Rose, no Jack, never let go? Of course not. That's not what that means. Or another exercise. How many similarities can you think of between Islam and Christianity? Well, they both have some degree of a focus on Abraham They both talk about God, they both talk about faith, they both view the Old Testament with reverence, they both talk about the importance of good works, God is merciful, the importance of Jesus, the significant role of Jerusalem. But does this mean that Christianity is the same as Islam? Of course not. In fact, we could do this with just about anything. What does a chair and a window have in common? Well, they both exist, they're both matter Uh, If we're talking about windows and and chairs here in this room, they're both purchased by the church. They're made up of molecules and atoms. They relate to the aesthetic of the room. You can see them. You can feel them if you cared to do so. There are lots of similarities between a window and a chair. But do these parallels, do these similarities mean that chairs and windows are the same? Was anyone tempted to think, oh my gosh, I guess chairs don't exist. Or everything I've ever believed about windows is a lie. Of course not. Why not? Because in spite of all the similarities, there are tons of dissimilarities, and those dissimilarities are what most distinguish a chair from a window, or Islam from Christianity, or Jeff from Jerry. So the fact that there are similarities between Christianity and other religions doesn't mean they're the same, or that Christianity is made up, or that Christianity just simply stole some ideas from other religions, or anything of that sort. The question isn't whether or not there are similarities, but why those similarities exist, And also, what are the dissimilarities? As we talked about a couple of weeks ago, one of the main dissimilarities is that Christianity is grounded in in an actual objective historical event, the resurrection of Christ. In Babylonian and other ancient Near Eastern myths, historicity is irrelevant. In Christianity, historicity means everything. If Christ wasn't actually born of a virgin or didn't actually rise from the dead, Christianity is worthless. In fact, it's worthless. It's a waste of our time. Again, in most ancient Near Eastern myths, whether or not something actually happened is completely irrelevant, but not in Christianity. So there are similarities, but so what? In fact, some similarities are inevitable. That's the second point here. Some similarities are inevitable. In other words, it would be really strange if there were no similarities at all. After all, all religions are attempting to answer certain basic questions of human longing and desire. Questions related to worship and the nature of God and with traditions regarding food and community. Most religions are trying to answer the questions, who are we? Why are we here? What's wrong with the world? What can uh, we do to make it right? So it would be really hard to answer those questions without at least some sort of overlap. The the following quote from a a book called Reinventing Jesus, which talks a lot about these uh, parallels and how misleading they are, uh, this quote is really helpful. 
It says, we might add that all religions, if they are to gain any converts, must appeal to universal human needs and desires. Should we be surprised then to discover parallels between Christianity and any other religion regarding the offer of life after death, identification with deity, initiation rites, or a code of conduct? In fact, C.S. Lewis, in talking about these alleged pagan parallels, said that it would be a huge argument against Christianity if there were no similarities. He said that would be a stumbling block. The presence of parallels is natural and inevitable in some sense. Let me give you an illustration of this. Suppose that you are a detective. And you're a detective, you're investigating a murder, and you have multiple witnesses that you have to talk to. You talk to witness A, and they claim that they heard an explosion late at night. You talk to witness B, and he said that he heard what sounded like fireworks sometime after 11.30. C said he thought a car backfired just before midnight, whereas D described a gunshot at 11.58. Now, if that's the case, do you conclude, I guess nothing really happened because there is this dissimilar testimony? Well, if that's the case, that doesn't explain the murder. But then do you swing the pendulum all the way to the other end? And do you conclude that all of that happened? That there were gunshots, that there were explosions, that there were uh, fireworks and backfiring cars? Or instead, do you see little hints in each of these accounts that point to some unique event? That A, B, and C all have something happening, a pagan parallel, if you will, but the existence of those parallels doesn't disprove a gunshot. Likewise, the existence of a story of a great flood from other cultures doesn't disprove the Bible any more than one witness saying that he heard what sounded like a car backfiring disproves a murder. So we shouldn't at all be surprised by pagan parallels. It would be really weird if there weren't any similarities. If we can come up with dozens of parallels between a chair and a window, then surely there are some similarities between Christianity and other religions. Let's take the flood account for uh, example. You see how it's kind of a catch-22 for Christians. If other cultures have flood stories, then skeptics say that Genesis is just another ancient Near Eastern myth. But if other cultures weren't to have those stories, then skeptics would say, why should we believe this when no other culture has ever mentioned such a story? So some similarities, some parallels are inevitably going to exist. That said, we also need to know, third point, that some of the so-called parallels are just completely made up. A really wise man once said, Wikipedia is the best thing ever. Anyone in the world can write anything they want about any subject so you know you are getting the best possible information. And that isn't just a problem with Wikipedia, but the entire internet. There are no costs, there are no consequences to just writing whatever. So some people prey off of our collective ignorance and gullibility and laziness. That's kind of the conspiracy theory cocktail. As a result, a lot of the so-called parallels that you might read about uh, on the internet or see in a YouTube video or something like that are completely without merit. Someone can tweet out that Osiris was resurrected, and no one's going to fact check him. Why not? Ain't nobody got time for that. And how would you check? You don't have a standardized Greek mythology Bible to consult. Instead, you just search the internet, which is part of the problem. So let me give you a couple of examples of this tendency to just completely make up these alleged parallels from an article that I read on Mithras. Did you know, according to this article at least, that Mithras was identified as a lion 
and a lamb. Well, who else does that sound like? Yeah, Jesus. That sounds a whole lot like Jesus. The problem, though, with this claim is that while Mithras is pictured as a lion, I haven't been able to find a single source saying that he is ever pictured as a lamb. But the author of this article knew that very few people would fact check him on that, so he seems to have just made it up. By the way, even the parallel between Mithras as a lion and Jesus as a lamb doesn't actually mean what the author of the article thinks. It doesn't mean that Christianity borrowed from the Mithras cult. Where does the image of Jesus as a lion come from? What actually comes all the way back, not just from the New Testament, but all the way back to the book of Genesis? That the offspring of Judah is like a lion. And Genesis was written a long time before the Mithras cult even existed. So Christianity couldn't have borrowed from it. Or another example of this, that Mithras sacrificed himself. The problem with that is he actually didn't. He sacrificed a bull. In fact, that's the major story in the Mithras cult. And there's a world of difference between sacrificing a bull and sacrificing yourself. But it sounds so much more conspiratorial to say that he sacrificed himself. So the author just said it. No fact check, no peer review. But again, most of the people who would read that article simply read that Mithras was described as a lion and a lamb and that he sacrificed himself. They don't take the time to double check to see if that parallel is even accurate, much less whether or not it is logically significant. Speaking of significance, let's look at the next point, and that is that the overwhelming majority of similarities are really, really superficial. We, we have a saying in English about apples and oranges. Well, both are fruits, both are round, both are full of vitamins, but does that mean that they're the same? Of course not. In fact, our saying, comparing apples to oranges, is built upon the fact that they are actually dissimilar. Well, most of the pagan parallels that are mentioned are very shaky. You ever see pictures of a house or a hotel online, and then you actually visit it, and you think, how in the world is this the same place? That's what most of these parallels remind me of. The pictures present the best possible representation, but the problem is that it leaves out the pictures of the rats that inhabit the attic or the flooded basement. Likewise with these pagan parallels, the information is presented in a particular way to highlight what they want to emphasize, but hiding the fact that the house actually burned down years ago. Let me give you a couple of examples of this really superficial, shallow similarity related to the virgin birth and the resurrection. Let's, uh, let's start with the virgin birth again. Let's take your boy uh, Mithros. Did you know that Mithros was the product of a virgin birth? At least that's the way that it's uh, presented online. The problem is, not only is there not just one story of his birth, but in some versions of his birth, Mithras was born from a stone. He was born from a stone and he got stuck on the way out. Some nearby persons in a field pulled him from the stone, which left a cave behind him. And that account right there, the account of Mithras being born from a stone, is sometimes referred to as a parallel with a virgin birth. By the way, those persons who pulled him out, that's also seen as a parallel with the shepherds in the field who visit Jesus. Now, I know what you're thinking. 
That's incredible. That's an actual virgin birth. The birth of Mithras and the birth of Jesus are identical. It's like Danny DeVito and Arnold Schwarzenegger and twins. It's uncanny. I guess you could argue that birth from a rock is sort of a virgin birth. Although I don't know how you can tell if a, if a rock is actually a virgin and how do rocks lose their virginity. It's a serious stretch of the imagination to think that the birth of Mithras is a virgin birth. But you know what? Every other virgin birth similarity between Christianity and pagan myths is just about as shaky as that. In the pagan mystery religions, those quote-unquote virgin births come about as a result of some god actually procreating with a woman. Basically, she is a, uh, a virgin, but then she has a, a sexual relationship with a god, which means she's no longer a virgin. To call this a virgin birth is, is simply irresponsible and misunderstands the nature of Christ's virgin birth according to Christian theology. Or let's consider the alleged parallels between Christianity and other religions as it relates to resurrection. Look at this really scary quote from the book, uh, The Laughing Jesus. Uh, the authors there say, each mystery religion taught its own version of the myth of the dying and resurrecting God-man who was known by different names in different places. Well, let's pull back the curtain for a second and ask if this is actually true. Here's an example of uh, one of these alleged parallels the Egyptian god Osiris was murdered by his brother, who then sank his coffin into the Nile. By the way, if you go and read a, a number of the pagan parallel uh, websites, that is seen as a parallel to Christ's baptism. But anyway, someone then found the body of Osiris and dismembered it, cut it into 14 parts, which were then scattered throughout the world. At that point, the god Isis found 13 of the 14 parts and put them back together. Even then, though, Osiris doesn't come back to life. Instead, he becomes king of the underworld. Now, let me ask you this question. How similar is that to the, to the Christian account of the resurrection? It's not very similar at all. That similarity is very superficial, very shallow. In most of these myths, if, if not in all of these uh, pagan myths, the quote-unquote gods die each year, and they rose again each year. Why? Because it was a part of the agricultural cycle. It's not seen as this watershed moment in history, and certainly not reflecting the concept of resurrection. The idea that other cultures had actual resurrection stories is very historically naive. You have to understand that in Greek culture, the body was seen as a prison, and the goal was to escape. Life after death was a somewhat common image, but it was always disembodied life. So the idea that other religions had actual resurrection, which is a raising of the body as a part of their stories, is not only historically inaccurate, but absurd. By the way, if you want to read the definitive work on the distinctiveness of the resurrection of Christ, go and read the book, The Resurrection of the Son of God by N.T. Wright. It'll take you months to read, but it is incredible. And this is a quote by a, a scholar named Walter Kunneth. He says, It is superficial and unfounded to say that the study of the history of religions has shown the dependence of the resurrection of Jesus on mythology. On the contrary, it is precisely the comparison 
with the history of religion that gives rise to the strongest objections to any kind of mythifying of the resurrection of Jesus. As we talked about a couple of weeks ago, it is the historical account of resurrection that sets the Christian claim apart. And it is the central question which must be answered. If Christ did not rise from the dead, then Christianity is false and should be discarded as such. But if he did rise, this reality has profound implications for us and for our lives. So are there similarities between the virgin birth of Jesus and the mythic births of various gods or Alexander the Great and Romulus? Well, sure, there are some similarities, but it is the vast dissimilarities, such as the non-sexual nature of the Christian account, that distinguishes it. And likewise, are there similarities between the resurrection of Christ and the pagan myths of dying and rising gods? Sure, there are some similarities, but there are also these profound dissimilarities. It is the objective historical aspect and the very nature of what resurrection entails, which is a rising of the body that distinguishes Christianity from those other myths. So there are some vague similarities, but most of them are very superficial and, uh, and misleading. Next point, number five, some of the similarities that we see between Christianity and uh, other religions are actually intentional. They're intentional, they're missional, they are apologetic. When, when someone points to a parallel between Christianity and pagan myths, they typically have a point in doing so. They're not just simply bringing up a piece of trivia, they're trying to make up an argument. They aren't just bringing up an irrelevant fact. To them, this is an evidence And that evidence is used to disprove Christianity. Here's the argument that Christianity simply borrowed concepts like the virgin birth or the resurrection or communion or sacrifice, etc. from surrounding cultures and therefore Christianity can be dismissed. Now, hopefully you notice that's actually two different arguments. Number one, that Christianity actually borrowed those elements. And number two, that that therefore means that Christianity... Uh, can be dismissed, that it's been disproven. Now, even if one is true, that doesn't necessarily and logically prove two. Even if Christianity did borrow some elements, that doesn't mean that Christianity is disproven or dismissed. To be fair, Christianity didn't borrow the virgin birth or resurrection and so forth. But there are times when the authors of Scripture did look for some parallels in regards to common language and traditions. What is happening here is that Christians were accommodating their message to be understood. They're not altering it. They're not making it up. They're not borrowing. Instead, they're accommodating their message to the uh, culture around them so that they might be understood. So even though none of the parallels that you read on the Internet are true or helpful, There are indeed some other parallels that serve an apologetic or missional purpose. For example, the word gospel. The word gospel was a a common cultural term with rich Roman usage to describe conquests by an earthly king. Archaeologists have actually uh, uncovered ancient first century inscriptions that read the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. Now that's really fascinating considering that Mark begins his gospel how? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now why does he do that? Why does he borrow a phrase with these rich pagan roots? 
Well, because the early church found in that word and in that phrase a common link to communicate God's superior victory. They weren't blindly borrowing. They were engaging in subversive theology. In other words, if the ascension and conquest of Caesar is good news, how much more that of Jesus, the true and better king? What better way to communicate that than to leverage an existing concept, an existing phrase, existing language, and then to expand its meaning, to inject in it this greater meaning? Or let me give you another example of this from Acts 17, verses 22 through 31, which says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it. Being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So notice the similarities that Paul mentions there. He says of the Athenians, you're religious and I'm religious. You worship gods, I worship God. But notice what he does next. He looks for an inroad, but then he instantly goes in a new direction. He says, what you worship as unknown, I know. God doesn't live in temples. Contrary to what you think, he doesn't need anything contrary to your gods. He isn't made by human hands like your idols. So when it comes to parallels, some of them are intentional, but they're subversive. The point of Acts 17 isn't that God is just like the Athenian gods, but rather that he is decidedly unlike those gods. The similarities just get his foot in the door. Likewise, the point of some parallels between Jesus and Caesar, for instance, isn't that Jesus is like Caesar, but that he is unlike Caesar. So most of the parallels that you'll read about on the internet aren't helpful, they're very misleading, but occasionally you will come across one and you need to recognize that it's actually intentional on the part of the author for apologetic missional purposes. Next point, number six. The borrowing, quote unquote, often goes in the other direction. A minute ago, uh, I said that skeptics who like to talk about parallels have a goal, They're making two arguments. The first is that Christianity borrows from other religions. We granted that for a second to consider why the biblical authors may have borrowed certain phrases and that kind of stuff. But let's go deeper into this argument and see if it's actually misleading. Although I do think that there are a few examples of biblical authors borrowing words or phrases from the surrounding culture, most of the examples that you might read about online are really misleading and unhelpful and untrue. 
In fact, we might say that there's actually a reverse dependency. It isn't that Christianity borrows from pagan religions, but rather that pagan religions accommodated and altered their forms to adjust to the spread of Christianity. So what I want you to do is I want you to think of church history through three distinct time periods. Think of uh, church history uh, in the early church through the periods of uh, the resurrection of Christ, so approximately 33 A.D., all the way to 100 A.D. And then think of a second period from 101 all the way to 300 A.D. And then think of a third period between about 301 to about 500 A.D. And let's think of that first period from 33 to 100. What's really interesting is we have no evidence of parallels between Christianity and any of the pagan mystery religions involving Mithras or Osiris or whatever it might be. None. Zero. This is highly significant. Why? Because this is when the New Testament documents were being written. If Christianity simply borrowed from other religions, this is when we would need to see examples of that. But we do not. Instead, that doesn't come about until much later. Let's look at the period from 101 to 300 AD. So Christianity is now beginning to spread historically well, as a result of that, the pagan mystery religions are threatened. And so what we see historically is that they begin to adjust their message to parallel certain dimensions of Christian teaching. For example, one cult had uh, traditionally uh, taught that blood sacrifice cleansed worshipers for 20 years. But in light of, uh, uh, of Christian teaching, we see in the 2nd and 3rd centuries that all of a sudden this cult begins to teach eternal forgiveness. It's kind of like a company that has a one-year warranty and then the competition comes out and offers a lifetime guarantee. What does that first company do? Well, they adjust their message and say, no longer do we have a one-year warranty, we're going to have a lifetime guarantee. They change their policy. Another example of this, again, from the cult of Mithras, there was a communal meal in which the terminology of body and blood were used. But the, uh, the earliest evidence of such terminology in the context of Mithraism is from the mid-2nd century, nearly 100 years after, go- after the Gospels were written. In other words, many uh, of the similarities and parallels, especially with all of the stuff that you'll uh, read in these conspiracy theories regarding pagan mystery religions, in, in almost all of these cases, the borrowing is decidedly one-dimensional. The New Testament was already written and transmitted 100 years before we start seeing these similar concepts, these parallels in other religions. So saying that Christianity simply stole those things from pagan mystery religions or borrowed them, it's kind of like saying that Michael Jordan stole from LeBron James or or Martin Luther learned everything he knows from Zach Lee. The math doesn't add up. The dependence goes in the opposite direction. So there seems to be no real borrowing in either direction in the first century, and then pagan borrowing of Christian motifs in the second and third century. But something interesting happens starting in the fourth century. That's when Christianity becomes the imperial religion, and it's here that we start to see Christianity beginning to adopt and adapt various pagan parallels. For instance, this is when we see Christmas and Easter celebrations, which have pagan roots. 
By the, by the way, we have a blog called Our Christian and, and Easter Pagan Holidays. That blog deals uh, with that topic and also shows us why, even if there were pagan roots, it is entirely acceptable to celebrate them uh, today. But here's my point. Yes, Christian practice and tradition borrowed from pagan practices in the 4th century and beyond, but that does not mean that Christianity itself or the authors of Scripture did so. Even if Horus was born on December 25th, that doesn't mean anything because the Bible never claimed that Christ was born on December 25th. The overwhelming majority of parallels that you hear uh, about between Jesus and Mithras or, or, or Osiris are either really shallow and misleading or they're accurate, but they're due to pagan borrowing of Christian concepts. We have no evidence whatsoever of Christianity borrowing actual theological concepts from those pagan mystery religions. Last point, I think this is important to recognize as well, is that these claims have been around for centuries. In other words, this is nothing new, nothing scary, If you've never heard this before, I'm sorry, but it isn't because it's a a valid conspiracy theory. It isn't because there's something to hide. Rather, it's because it's much ado about nothing. As far back as the late second century, a a pagan philosopher named uh, Celsus charged, the Christians have used the myths of Danae and uh, Melanippe and of the Age and Antiope to, uh, in fabricating this story of virgin birth. By the way, you can go back and read those quote-unquote virgin birth accounts of all of those characters that I probably mispronounced their name. They are pretty sexually graphic. Again, nothing like what we see in the New Testament. Now, we do have some early Christians like Justin Martyr. And and rather than defending against these claims, he actually kind of leaned into those comparisons. But the reason he did so was for apologetic purposes. He would say things like, if you can believe in the quote-unquote virgin births of these other gods, why can't you believe in Christ? What was he doing there? He's using this as a jumping-off point for the gospel. He didn't mean that those other religions actually had a virgin birth in the same sense as the Christian tradition of a virgin birth, but he was playing devil's advocate. By and large, all of these alleged comparisons were well-known. They were well-known even in the early church, but they were well-known to be a mile wide and an inch deep until at least the rise of theological liberalism. So in the 18th and 19th centuries, these popped back up, only to, to, to subsequently and entirely be put to death and debunked by conservative theologians. And then they lied dormant. But then, like Osiris, someone found all the parts and attempted to put him back together again. So why are we talking about them today? Well, the main reason is the prevalence of the internet and social media. You know those spam emails that your aunt sends you about the Nigerian prince or how you can charge your phone by putting it in a microwave? Those are about as true and helpful as the overwhelming majority of the conspiracy theories that you read about online regarding alleged parallels. There is no conspiracy theory here. There's nothing to be embarrassed by. There's nothing to ignore in fear that this will actually somehow upset our faith. In fact, I think the opposite is true. I think it's like hearing a noise at night and not knowing what it is. Those who simply get out of bed and go examine it for themselves, they, they, they see that it's just the dishwasher. So they go back to their room and what do they do? They go back to sleep. They sleep soundly 
But those who don't, those who lay in bed, those who try to suppress it, those who try to ignore it, they can't sleep because they create all kinds of ideas of what it could be. It's a monster, it's a serial killer, it's a kidnapper, it's a raccoon, it's whatever it might be. So my encouragement to you, if you're disturbed by this topic, go and do some research. But not on the internet, please no. Send us an email to info at the Parkway Church. We'd love to get you some, uh, some helpful resources. So are there parallels between Christianity and other religions? Yes. Should those parallels in any way at all disturb our confidence in Christianity? Not even a little. So the crucial question is not, are there parallels? Sure, of course there are. But that in and of itself doesn't mean anything. The question we have to come back to again and again is this. Did the events described in the New Testament actually occur? It doesn't matter if other religions have something kind of like a new uh, virgin birth or kind of like resurrection. What matters is if the virgin birth and the resurrection actually occurred in time and space as revealed in Scripture. If they didn't occur... Christianity is of no use. But if they did, it's of uh, inestimable worth. So what should you do the next time someone mentions some sort of pagan parallel? I'd encourage you to do a few things. Number one, encourage that person to locate the primary source. With the rarest of exceptions, the primary sources, that is to say the actual ancient texts that describe the pagan practices don't actually include any real parallels to the New Testament at all. Number two, determine if that parallel is actually all that parallel or if the similarity is superficial and shallow. Is the quote-unquote virgin birth merely someone being born out of a rock or having a God that procreates with a woman? Is the resurrection merely someone coming back to life or is it actually someone inhabiting this new and resurrected and glorified body? So determine if that parallel is actually parallel or if the similarity is really superficial and shallow. Number three, determine whether the supposed parallel precedes or succeeds the New Testament. Every text in the New Testament was in circulation no later than the first century A.D., If the pagan parallels from a text written later than the first century, then the New Testament writers obviously couldn't have borrowed from it. So determine where does this pagan parallel actually land historically. Is it from the first century? In which case there's a chance that it could have been uh, picked up by Christian writers. Or is it from the third or fourth or fifth century? In which case Christianity couldn't have borrowed from it. And then lastly... Determine whether the supposed parallel connects to the New Testament or to later Christian traditions. Connections between pagan practices and later patterns in Christian worship or holiday celebrations may be interesting, but those links have nothing to do with whether the the New Testament accounts of the life of Jesus are historically accurate. So, when it comes to these pagan parallels, there are some Uh, Most of them are very superficial. Some of them are inevitable, as any similarity uh, might be. The ones that uh, aren't that superficial, even they oftentimes are a result of the 
the pagan mystery religions borrowing from Christianity, but we would encourage you to study this for yourself. If you have questions, if you uh, would like some help on this, please send us an email. We'd love to grab coffee or something like that with you. Let's, uh, let's pray. We, uh, we love you. Thanks for listening to the audio. Father, I thank you for your grace and, uh, and mercy to us. I thank you for the uniqueness of the, uh, the accounts of the life, death, uh, and uh, resurrection of your son. I thank you that even though there are some similarities, it is the dissimilarity which shows forth the glory and brilliance of your Son. And I pray that our hearts would rest in that. If there is anyone who is uh, thinking about this or listening to this audio that is uh, in any way confused or concerned, Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes to the reality that there is no conspiracy here and there is nothing at all to be concerned about, Lord. And so I'm grateful for your love and grace and mercy. I pray that you would continue to help us to, uh, to rest in, uh, in you, the sufficiency and authority and inerrancy of your word and the glory of your son. It's in his name we pray, amen.